Do you believe in aliens? Little green men? Flying saucers? We can't be the only intelligent life in the whole universe, right? If aliens aren't real, why do men in black keep showing up whenever anyone says they do? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who would absolutely be one of the loonies on a roof with a sign asking the alien invaders to take me home with them. This week, sure, kids say the darndest things, but when dozens of them all claim to have witnessed the same exact thing, maybe we should take them seriously? Two stories about school children witnessing UFOs and their insistence, decades later, that what they said happened really happened. On the afternoon of April 6, 1966, the students and staff at the Westall School, a high school in Queensland, Australia, saw something hovering over the field behind the school. Richard Greenwood, a science teacher in his first year of teaching, explained it this way. Like a thin beam of light, about half the length of a light aircraft. It was silvery gray and seemed to thicken at times. The thickening was similar to when a disc is turned to show the underside. Some children who had been outside when the disc appeared started screaming, running inside for cover. Others ran out of the school and toured the field beyond the recess yard to get a closer look. Some sat down and cried, afraid this meant the end of the world was coming. It was, in a word, pandemonium. Chemistry teacher Barbara Robbins grabbed her camera and snapped photos of the event. Remember that. It will be important later. Mr. Greenwood said the craft was at first followed by one light aircraft, but that four more joined following the object as it accelerated from east to west, and that they seemed to be playing a sort of cat and mouse game. For those of you, like me, whose entire knowledge of aircraft comes from a handful of times of watching Top Gun, light aircraft are literally planes that don't weigh that much. So they could be crop dusters, private biplanes, or small military aircraft. Westall student Jacqueline Argent and her friend Tanya ran toward the object, past a thicket of pine trees. When the object took off and flew away, Tanya came running out of the pine thicket, apparently having actually seen the object up close. And according to Jacqueline, Tanya returned to school and went to pieces. Who knows exactly what went to pieces means, but whatever happened to Tanya, it was bad enough that an ambulance was sent for her. And Jacqueline said Tanya was taken away and she never saw her again. You know, just a normal Wednesday afternoon when your bestie gets hauled off in an ambulance never to be heard from again. Another student, Victor Sakruzny, claimed that before the object landed in the grove behind the pine trees, he saw two objects in a small field behind the school. And in a display of either incredible bravery or immense foolishness, he went to touch one of the objects. He said he could feel heat emitting from it, but before he could get to it, presumably to touch it, both objects took off straight up into the sky. But as they took off, Victor said he got a good look and noticed there wasn't a single seam in the build of either craft. Nowhere two separate pieces of metal had been joined or welded together. He said it was like they popped out of a mold in one solid piece. 
Mr. Greenwood said he saw all this happening over the course of about 20 minutes, at which point he said he looked away, and when he looked back moments later, they were all gone. The sky and the school grounds were empty of strange aircraft. Police and reporters arrived on campus, and then the men in black showed up. The media was promptly sent away, but not before snagging a couple of interviews with students and teachers who had witnessed the mysterious objects flying above their school. Eight days later, the Dandenong Journal posted a front-page story with the headline, Flying saucer mystery, school silent. What was it? After more than a week of investigation, mystery still surrounds the reported sighting last Wednesday of a flying saucer near the West Hall High School, Clayton. Investigations of the report have been hampered by the reluctance of school authorities to permit interviews with eyewitness students and staff members. Judith McGee, vice president of the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society, which, from what I can glean, was basically the UFO version of the Bigfoot Research Organization, heard about the incident at Westall School and went to investigate. McGee was also unable to get any information from students or staff at the school who were still, it seems, unwilling to talk about what they'd witnessed. But she did report that some of the grass in the area looked like it had been flattened by a round object that she suspected could have flattened the grass while either landing or taking off. She did not, however, get any pictures, which seems unfortunate. Like, did she really not think to bring a camera to the alleged site of an alien invasion? She was the vice president of an organization dedicated to studying literally the things she was out there to study, and she didn't have a way of documenting the evidence? McGee said that military personnel that had visited the area the previous Sunday would have likely trampled out any evidence anyway. Still, snap a picture or two. You know, McGee said she believed some of the children heard the sound of engines and saw light aircraft circling the object. How she got this information from witnesses who wouldn't talk is unclear. The Department of Civil Aviation did a check for strange aircraft in the area and reportedly found none. And TBH, I don't know if that means they checked to see if anything was supposed to be flying in that area that day or if anyone had reported to them that they'd seen something in the area that day. Either way, they claim there was nothing to report. According to the article in the Dandenong Journal, the Bureau of Meteorology said a weather balloon had been released somewhere in the area that Wednesday morning, and high winds might have sent it drifting toward the Westall School area. Is it just me, or should they stop making weather balloons shaped exactly like flying saucers? Considering how often people supposedly mistake them for UFOs, maybe it's time for a change in the design. At the very least, maybe affix lettering to the sides of the weather balloons that reads, Not a UFO. Weather balloons aside, the Dandenong Journal posted another article a week later with the headline, Flying Saucer Mystery Deepens, Who Were the Five Pilots? The article claimed that a wall of silence had seemingly been thrown up by school officials about the incident. Back at Westall, students who had appeared on a Channel 9 news segment about the event were threatened with detention if they spoke to anyone else. Mr. Greenwood was told he would lose his job if he had anything else to say publicly about the events that 
absolutely did not take place anyway. They also threatened to tell everyone he was an alcoholic. A week after the second article ran, the journal ran a follow-up lamenting the secrecy around the incident. Any children they tried to ask about it told them the headmaster had instructed them not to say anything about it. But apparently it wasn't just the headmaster. Several children claimed that people in very nice suits came to speak to the whole school to tell them what they'd seen was an experiment and that they needed to keep it a secret. What was with all the secrecy? Why were the children instructed not to talk about it? What were they trying to hide? And who was trying to hide whatever it was? Also, where were the parents? If my kid came home and said something had happened at school that he wasn't allowed to tell me about, you know I would find his principal's home address and pound on their door until I got some answers. But there didn't seem to be any sort of response from parents. Were they also instructed not to speak? Since no one would go on the record, the story sort of faded away. That is, until an amateur researcher started digging around 50 years later. And what he uncovered was something truly out of this world. Thank you in advance for my People's Choice Podcasting Award for Best One-Liners Leading into Ad Breaks. Decades after the incident at the Westall School in the 2000s, amateur researcher Shane Ryan decided it was time to uncover the stories that had been locked away that April in 1966. He grew up hearing whispers of what happened there that day and wanted to know the truth. So he set out to investigate the infamous event for a documentary called Phenom Westall 66, a suburban UFO mystery. Ryan interviewed several former students and a couple of teachers at Westall who claimed to have witnessed this event firsthand. But there are huge holes in Ryan's story. Remember the news crews who showed up to the school immediately following the incident? One was Channel 9 News. Shane Ryan went to the station's archive department and was told, yes, indeed, there was a record of interviews and footage taken that day at the Westall School. But when Ryan went to get the can of film from the archive room, it was, oddly, empty. The film was missing. He said he was devastated and that no one had any idea where the film had gone. But he doesn't document a search for the missing film, and it seems to me that documenting the process of trying to find out what happened to that potentially crucial film would not only make for a compelling piece of the documentary, but might also help to figure out what happened or if there was a cover-up. Similarly, student Graham Simmons remembered seeing teacher Barbara Robbins in a confrontation with a school official and a man he'd never seen before. They were demanding Ms. Robbins hand over not only the film, but the camera she used to take photos of the event. But Ryan doesn't seem to try to track down Ms. Robbins or her camera. And as for Tanya, the student who supposedly went to pieces and was taken away in an ambulance, never to be seen again? Who was that? What had she seen? Where did they take her? And who took her? Ryan never touches on the subject at all. Is it just me, or would it be useful to try to find the disappeared student? That said, 
Ryan also manages to track down witnesses who weren't at the Westall School. Witnesses, it seemed, that hadn't been interviewed at the time of the sighting. Paul Smith, a gardener at a farm next to the school, saw the object in the sky and, in a stunning instance of denial, thought that somehow someone was projecting the image onto the sky with film? In 1966. This dude was reading way too much Philip K. Dick. At any rate, Smith claimed that about 20 minutes after the object landed behind the pine trees, army trucks showed up along with men in khaki uniforms. But, according to military historian Lieutenant Colonel Neil Smith, there wouldn't have been army troops close enough to arrive in such a short period of time. He believes the first people to arrive on the scene would have been working for the government, possibly working for the Department of Research and Development. Yet another witness, Les Medieu and his sister, who were in the area after the UFOs had gone, claimed to have seen military trucks and men, some in camouflage, some in blue uniforms, using what he thought was a mine detector to sweep the area. Kevin Hurley, a university student at the time, came back to the Westall area the day after the event and was stopped by a large group of military. All he was able to see before he was turned away was what he thought were Geiger counters. When he returned a week later, the grass covering the whole area had been cut and burned. And what about the five light aircraft playing that cat-and-mouse game with the object? According to air traffic control, any aircraft in the air would have been in view of air traffic control at all times. And of course, there was no official report of any light aircraft in the air around that time. Does that mean the witnesses were lying? Or could it be that the people at air traffic control were told to get rid of evidence. It turns out there were quite a few other sightings in the area in the days leading up to the incident at Westall, including a sighting with a photograph of an object in the sky that looked remarkably like a saucer, as well as two men days apart driving down the same stretch of road in central Victoria, being pulled toward bright lights behind the trees on the side of the road. One man managed to pull himself out of what felt like a magnetized beam, but the other wasn't so lucky. He crashed into the same tree the other man had narrowly missed, dying on impact. The man who survived was visited by a couple of government officials who examined his car, left, and never followed up. Why would the government care about a civilian car crash? You feel me? Ryan tried to find the records on any of these sightings in the Royal Australian Air Force records and found none. Another UFO researcher also looked through the RAAF records and found absolutely nothing on the Westall event. Nothing. Dozens of witnesses, news reports, military and government involvement at the time of the incident, and not a thing acknowledged from the country's own Air Force? You know me, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but this doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't there be any information at all in the official records? There is no better way to fuel suspicion than to pretend an event didn't even happen when you have all these people going, I was literally there, I saw it. What was said to these kids that made them stay silent for so long? Like, I get that they didn't want to get detention or whatever, but the threat of detention is kind of moot after graduation. 
According to military historian Neil Smith, the answer could be relatively innocent. He says the reason there are no files and that the area was allegedly burned afterward is that it could have been secret military aircraft testing. The Australian government may have been building and testing unmanned aircraft, the details of which were being well guarded for obvious reasons. In fact, he says that because whoever it was that responded to the scene as quickly as they did were able to get there so fast, he believes that whatever it was, those people had to have known about it ahead of time. Whether that means it was a test of proprietary secret aircraft or a UFO they had perhaps been tracking for days, we don't know. As for Tanya, the girl who fell apart and was never heard from again, according to a screenshot of a comment Shane Ryan left on Facebook to what I don't know, Tanya moved away and changed her name. Apparently, according to Ryan, she doesn't remember things quite the same way as some of her classmates do. She remembers seeing two saucers and being interviewed by two men she believed to be police. Whether or not the staff and students really saw alien aircraft on that day in 1966 is unclear. But one thing that is clear is that there was a great deal of secrecy around this event. At the very least, the school administration attempted to gag their student body and faculty. But it seems strongly evident that there really was some governmental interference as well. If this was truly a case where nothing happened, I doubt we would see so many examples of people's accounts being silenced. Regardless, people won't be silenced forever, and now we have multiple documentaries on the subject and many, many people who believe the story is true. Take that, men in black. The Westall School incident was not the last time a group of school children claimed to be visited by a UFO. Almost 30 years later and 6,500 miles away, another inexplicable visitation rocked a small school community, leaving many to wonder what was real and what wasn't. On September 16, 1994, the children of Ariel Middle School in Rua, Zimbabwe, were on their mid-morning recess when they noticed something in the grass beyond the playground. One large disc-like object and two or three smaller ones landed in the bush with a whirring sound. Their shapes were hard to discern because they glowed with a bright silvery white light. And then a small figure emerged from one of the crafts. Standing at about four feet tall, it wore a shiny black one-piece suit and had a large head, huge eyes, and long black hair. So, basically Kim Kardashian. Of the 250 students, just over 60 claimed to have witnessed these discs landing behind their school. The school's headmaster, Mr. Mackey, rather than telling the students to never speak of it again, asked his students to draw pictures of what they had seen. And though he himself wasn't witness to it, he told BBC News that he believed the children saw something that was, at least to regular children, unidentifiable. The children all drew roughly the same images. The crafts were saucer-shaped, and the figures were what we all commonly think of when we think of little green men, except they weren't green. Or maybe they were. The children never seemed to mention the color of the figures at all. All we know is that their eyes, hair, and one-piece suits were black. 
The report from the BBC found several witnesses not affiliated with the school at all who claimed to have witnessed a strange orange glow over their properties. The incredibly frustrating thing about the report from the BBC is that, for some strange reason, they didn't see fit to put anyone's name on screen. So who the hell is being interviewed is really anyone's guess. The one person they do identify is UFO enthusiast Cynthia Hind, who came to speak to the children with a guy named Gunther, who looks like he's about 14, but whom she claims is a technological whiz who made his own Geiger counter and metal detector, which looks to me like a wooden stick with a radio tape to it and a children's sand toy stuck to the bottom. I guess there's not a lot of money to be made in the UFO enthusiasm industry. In the 4-minute and 13-second BBC report, Cynthia said, They did tell me from London this could be the biggest story of the 20th century. Now, who they are, I have no idea, but they clearly were wrong, because aside from that one BBC report, I couldn't find a single other contemporary news story covering the case. It seems like BBC News is the only actual news outlet that covered it. Unless there were reports in local papers that I just couldn't find. I didn't see any coverage from any other real news source. The only other outlet that covered the story was UFO Africa News, which I'm guessing exactly what you might think it is, a journal of UFO news in Africa. And it's unclear if the reporter for the pieces interviewed the children themselves or gleaned the information from the BBC piece. They also spend what is, in my opinion, an unnecessary amount of time discussing the various races of the children involved, a detail that is wholly unimportant. And not for nothing, but the piece refers to one of the white children as, quote, the most articulate of the children, not once, but twice. And you can watch the BBC clip and judge for yourself, but I would say the children are all equally articulate, so it's hard to take anything in the UFO Africa News report too seriously. Here's the thing. An article in the Sunday Mail written 20 years after the event claimed that, quote, the world was left in a state of disbelief after the events at Ariel School unfolded and created, quote, a buzz all over the world with local and international media struggling to make heads or tails of it. But unless the author of that article thinks that one four-minute piece from the BBC News and two reports in UFO Africa News constitutes an international buzz... I don't know what they're referring to. Unless they know something I don't. What if there were pieces in all the major newspapers all over the globe when this happened and they've all been mysteriously scrubbed from the record? Just like any reports of the events at the Westall School 30 years earlier were. This scenario seems unlikely. You'd think there would be a lot of people who remember reading about it coming forward and being like, I know I read about this in the New York Times. Why can't I find the articles anymore? Or maybe it's like the Mandela effect, where seemingly millions of people remember an event from history that other millions don't. I'm telling you, it was the Berenstain Bears when I was growing up, not the Berenstain Bears. The piece in the Sunday Mail quoted a teacher who had been there that day who said they didn't see what the children claimed to have seen, but they could attest the children were definitely freaked out. And it seemed to the teacher that something not right had definitely taken place outside the school that morning. 
On the other hand, it also quoted a resident of the area who lived nearby the school when the event supposedly happened, and they had never heard of it until the Sunday Mail came knocking asking about it. So what was it? Was it just a case of mass hysteria? Did a bunch of impressionable children manage to convince each other they saw something they didn't? What about the grown-ass adults who said they saw the weird orange glow in the sky? The case was included in a 2011 paper in the Malawi Medical Journal called Episodes of Mass Hysteria in African Schools, a Study of Literature. Demobli Kokoda writes, In 1994, 62 children all reported seeing an alien craft land and extraterrestrial creatures emerge. Virtually every single one of the 62 children iterated the exact same story with the same details, and none of them had gone against his or her story. Many dismissed the 1994 incident as mass hysteria affecting the children. But when the children were found to not have much prior knowledge to UFOs or popular UFO perceptions, many other people believed that what the children witnessed could have been real. I mean, I'm no expert, but that sounds like an argument against mass hysteria, no? However, based on the interviews in the BBC piece, the students didn't all give the exact same story in the same details. Like, at all. 20 years after the event, reporter Sean Christie from the Mail and Guardian newspaper was back in the area tracking down student witnesses. According to the only one he found, though, everyone else had, quote, fucked off to Canada or the UK. But this former student, who didn't want her real name used, said, What do you want to know? Actually, it'll be simpler if I just shoot. It happened, okay? 62 kids between the ages of about 6 and 12 saw the aliens land and get out of their little ships. When the kids returned to class, they were completely freaked and couldn't stop nattering about little men who looked a bit like Michael Jackson. The teachers told them to shut up, as teachers want to do, and classes proceeded. But the next day, the school received a bunch of calls from parents wanting to know why their kids were spooked. Got so that the teacher started to freak out too, and a local UFO expert called Cynthia Hind was invited to speak to everyone. It was via her, I think, that we heard about a famous shrink who was coming from the US to assess the children. What was his name now? Mick. Dr. John Mick. Dr. John E. Mack was a Pulitzer Prize winning author and professor of psychiatry at Harvard. It seems Mac was interested in tales of alien sightings and alien abductions, specifically as those things related to people who were struggling with mental illness and suffered as social outcasts because of their experiences. He was reportedly a gentle man who studied these types of alien encounters frequently enough to base his 1994 book, Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens, on this work. Mac seemed to be less concerned about whether or not aliens were real than in the psycho-spiritual and social implications of the abduction phenomenon. As soon as word hit the UFO and alien circuit that there had been a mass sighting in Zimbabwe, Mac booked his ticket and flew there ASAP. 
He is said to have interviewed a number of the children and, according to one article, was, quote, astonished to discover, in case after case, powerful messages about the human threat to the Earth's ecology were being conveyed to the experiencers in vivid, unmistakable words and images. He personally deemed it, quote, quite possible that the protection of the Earth's life is at the heart of the abduction phenomenon. So, there you have it. The reason for alien visitation to Earth has probably been to warn us that we are huge assholes. And we have mostly been responding by covering it up. Newsflash, Earth, you can't cover up this many huge assholes. I guess other academics were less curious about alien connections. It seems all of Harvard was more or less horrified by their Pulitzer winner's newer line of research and nearly voted to censure Mac even though he was a long-tenured professor. Apparently, aliens are... alienating. Ultimately, though, they opted for a looser approach, and after over a year of research into... his... research, they, quote, reaffirmed Dr. Mack's academic freedom to study what he wishes and to state his opinion without impediment. Cool, Harvard. Very freedom of speechy of you. One of the most interesting things about the incident in Zimbabwe, in my opinion anyway, is the lack of visits from mysterious figures in black telling those children not to speak of what they saw. Indeed, it seemed there was a lack of interest all around about this sighting. Despite that one article claiming it was a huge buzz all over the world and Cynthia Hind saying it would be the biggest event of the 20th century. Where were the shadowy government or military officials warning the children not to tell anyone and threatening the teachers with their jobs? Was it because it didn't happen in a major Eurocentric country and the powers that be arrogantly and correctly didn't think it would grab much attention? Was it that we were in the middle of the ironic 90s when not caring about anything was in? In the end, it is very hard to find consistent, credible sources that support the idea that alien and spacecraft sightings are real. And even when someone credible does believe, it's just as easy for doubt to be cast over their accounts as it has been over the accounts of so many worldwide. Even when the accounts are by whole groups of people and not just one weirdly insistent Reddit user. We may never know if aliens have visited our humble planet, and honestly, they'd probably like to keep it that way. If not, they'd probably do a better job of making themselves known to us. School children are not the most reliable of witnesses. Maybe go ahead and land in the president's rose garden. As it is, we simple humans have no choice but to run around comparing notes, obsessing over strange lighting and flattened grass. Come to think of it, that's probably mighty entertaining to watch from on high. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Somewhere in the 400 feet between his front door and the bus stop, a little boy goes missing and his disappearance will haunt the city for 40 years. The story of Eton Pates. 
We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Andrea Jones Sojola. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It actually really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod and check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>